Glass Coffee House. We've got a Jordan Peterson reading list book today. It's a big one. And because there's so much going on here, we're going to have to break it up into a few parts. We're not going to do them all back to back. We're going to switch it up with some other books in between. But this one we're going to get through. <laughs> So, uh, the most pronounced topic in human history, the measure by which all human evil is measured, the inevitable end of every online dispute, the rise and fall of the Third Reich, is a pillar in nonfiction. Written by William L. Schreier and published in 1960, it's more than a thousand pages. <laughs> so, this one is just books one and two. It covers kind of family history and the lead-up. So what's the content of this book? Hitler's uh, actual last name, his original last name, was Schickelgruber. It was Adolf Schickelgruber. Anybody know this? <laughs> and I have to think that when you see that name on ballots, we could have avoided a lot of trouble. I don't think that people would have been inclined uh, not to offend people named Schickelgruber, but I really think that that might have short-circuited this whole thing right at the beginning. But the father, his father, Alois, I think was his name, changed the name early on, and apparently it's supposed to mean, or they believe that it means something to the effect of one who lives in a hut. Apparently Adolf was uh, close to his sister. He got drunk one time and that was enough for him. He didn't get drunk again after that. He was a vegetarian. So if you want to play that association game in an argument then uh, and you're arguing with a vegetarian, then you can always use that. He had a, there was this period after he served in the military and he came back, he didn't really know what he was going to do and he had these five years of miseries, what he called them. And one thing that struck me early on was that the anti-Semitism that would later come to characterize so much of what the Nazis did was actually a pretty regular feature in German society at this point. So it's not something that just arose by virtue of the hateful Adam, the hateful unit of Adolf Hitler. It's something that was already there. And of course he came back from the war, he had been injured during the war, the First World War, and so he came back kind of a hero. And that gave him a lot of reputation, at least some reputation, to stand on based on that. So then he starts getting his political awakening. And one of the books oh, one of the books that he read early on was My Political Awakening by Anton Drexler. And it had a lot of stuff about anti-Semitism and nationalism and anti-capitalism and anti-Marxism. Now, I think Hitler himself specifically said that this was just reflective of the ideas that he already had, so it's not necessarily the thing that shaped his ideas. And I'm trying to cover mostly things that people wouldn't necessarily know about the guy. Obviously, everybody knows that he was imprisoned after the putsch and wrote his book, and it was kind of a big deal and all that stuff. But here, there are so many details, so much good stuff in this book to try to understand what happened here. Drexler himself, the author, was a member of the German Workers' Party and... When Hitler started getting involved, he wanted to use more than ideas. He started engaging in encouraging acts of violence. And this around this time is when they needed a symbol, and they found the hooked cross. So they found the hooked cross, this very old symbol, and they just appropriated it for purposes of their movement. And you can see, when it comes to that symbol, it's so starkly obvious. When you see it, it's so recognizable. So it's just how much of this was a matter of excellent PR, you know, great branding when it comes to being able to use a swastika on everything. There are so many steps where it's just like, if that didn't happen so incredibly well, then none of the stuff that follows would have happened. Anyway, so what do we have in Germany at this point? Obviously, there's the Treaty of Versailles, which was uh, pretty devastating to Germany in general. After the First World War, there was the Weimar Republic that was installed uh, with a constitution, by the way, that guaranteed some rights. 
and and then you've got Hitler's Beer Hall Putsch, which was a failed coup, and that's really he's imprisoned and galvanized galvanizes kind of a, a movement around it as Germany is the reality is if Germany was doing super well, and most people would know this, if Germany was doing super well after First World War, they get rid of the people who are in power and just try to support <laughs> Germany, you know, like what happened with Japan after the Second World War, then it, none of this stuff would have happened. I'm sure that it would have never been appealing. It's just crazy. So, obviously, Hitler himself, he felt that the Jews and the Slavs were the chaff of Germany and Germans were the wheat. It starts falling along racial lines when it comes to that kind of a thing. I think at point, well, some point he said it's not a state with an army, it's an army with a state. So that goes to show you where, where the fascism came from. Nietzsche's sister used Nietzsche's writings at this point and the idea of the Superman. A lot of this was appealing to Germans and Hitler. Nazis love Wagner. I think Hitler said specifically, to understand Nazism, you must understand Wagner. So take that for what you will. And we've got a Dawes plan, and again, we just have a succession of all the wrong things happening in exactly the right way for all this to happen. So you've got the Dawes plan that was about reparations that was supposed to make it easier for the Germans to pay back the reparations from World War One, And it was this kind of escalated system where they'd pay a certain amount the first year, and then more the second year, and then more the third year. Uh, for reparations, but it failed, and uh, you've got the French who left the Ruhr area, which is supposed to be, you know, kind of a buffer for the French to hold, but they left as part of this Dawes plan, and and as part of this also, a bunch of bonds from the U.S. were sent to Germany to try to help them out, and none of that worked, you know, it wasn't sufficient, because there were still just crushing reparations demanded, and there was a lot that the Germans couldn't do at this point, and, and obviously you just, you just beat them in a war, you don't want them to be able to go back to war, <laughs> so. Oh, to some degree, you got to understand it. But still, you've got to expect that if you beat down an entire people too much, then they're going to have to react in some way. They're going to be inclined or encouraged to react in a particularly bad way. And all this was around 1924 was the Dawes plan and all this stuff. And then you've got like 25 to 31, I think is the next section where he meets Goebbels. And there's this, oh, this thing that happened with his niece, which was a little weird. He was apparently, and I'm not sure how much I talked about it in this book, but I read a little bit up on it on the side. But he had this niece that he just loved, and she lived with him at one point. There's some suggestion there was some kind of a relationship between them, or he was at least really controlling. He was apparently not particularly sexual in general. <laughs> So, I don't know how much there is to that, but he was, he might have been very controlling of her and where she could go and not go. But she wanted to leave at a certain point to go study voice, you know, and start a career. It was something she was interested in. But she was found dead by gunshot wound, I think, in his apartment or in his place or whatever. And it was ruled a suicide, but obviously we don't, we don't know necessarily that that was the accurate ruling. She was apparently shot in the lung and generally... I'm not going to speculate on how people tend to commit suicide. But so anyway, she ended up, she was shot in the lung and she died and it was ruled a suicide. And, but the one thing that's not disputed is that Hitler was just despondent for an extended period of time after this. He was very, very sad as a result of losing his, his favorite niece. And you've got uh, Hindenburg at this point, and you've got elections, and Hindenburg was kind of unbeatable, and Hitler lost an election to Hindenburg, and then switched his tone from just decrying what people were doing to selling a good future for Germany, you know, if people voted for him, and then he doubled down on his campaigning and did much better thereafter. 
And then you've got, you know, a ramping up situation here where there's the dissolution of the Reichstag, which is the parliament, the German parliament, and the Reichstag fire, which was determined. Again, we don't know how much of these investigations are genuine investigations and how much actually involves some kind of foul play in the background to set these things up. So it was determined that there was a single arsonist for the Reichstag fire and Hitler used this situation to say that a bunch of communists were there attacking Germany. So use that to, as propaganda, or it, it might have been legitimate, it might have actually happened, that communists were attacking Germany. <laughs> but he used that to buttress his platform and, and get to move forward on that. So then we've got a big movement where we've got nationalization of businesses, big businesses in Germany, the abolition of unearned incomes. We've got a cut in debt of farmers, which scared a lot of the banks. And you've got unemployment's going down at this point. You know, Germans are actually getting jobs. Uh, there's this idea culturally of now you have to put the social group above yourself, above the individual. And then we get the anti-Semitism starts coming in. Where you've got Jews not welcome at different places. They're deprived of citizenship. You couldn't hire... If you were a Jew, you couldn't hire young German women. Uh, you could hire old ones because they're termed... They're deemed less valuable, apparently. But you couldn't hire young German women. They're excluded by industry. So it'd be this industry Jews can't work in. And then the next one, and then the next one. And you've got some sterilization laws going into place. And then the ramping up of Catholics uh, being arrested and suppressed. Catholicism in general being suppressed. And of course there's, there's this debate about whether Hitler was religious or not. And to some degree, I mean, he, he invokes Jesus at, at different times. But he speaks about Christianity and Jesus in general in kind of weird ways. So I don't think it's, it's actually significant whether he was or not. But he definitely at some points invokes Jesus and Christianity in positive lights and says that that's, you know, it's what supports me, it's what drives me, whatever. But in general, I don't think it's significant. I don't think it's a blight on Christianity apart from the ideas of anti-Semitism. There's plenty of anti-Semitism in the New Testament. So you can pull from that. And there was a whole history of anti-Semitism when it came to Christianity that had been building up to this point. But other than that, I don't think particularly what Hitler did, obviously. It would take a pretty rough reading to say that anything that Hitler did is you could draw a line from him to Jesus. Uh, yeah, Jesus. I'm a fan of Jesus, and I don't think that Jesus would have been inclined to do any of that stuff. So Martin Luther himself was very anti-Semitic. You know, this was something that had been building for a long time. There was one pastor that was sentenced to seven years for abuse of the public, I think was the term that was used. And that's the kind of, you know, thought or speech crime. You know, that's the kind of thing where it's it's got to arouse some kind of serious concern amongst the populace. And if there's no pushback, then you get what happens here. But there wasn't much outrage related to this when there's this suppression of religion. And you've got book burning that's going on by students. Freud, Gide, Zola, Proust, Einstein, I mean, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, all these things are being burned. And anything that acts subversively on our future was the standard. Which has got me, it's so weird because it's this, you get these panic moments where you're like, oh my gosh, this is the kind of thing that, uh, <laughs> that they're kind of using nowadays. Where they're saying that, okay, anything that, you know, hurts people's feelings or that espouses views, you know, whether it's gone with the wind that doesn't have the right views. We need to suppress that in some way. And you just wonder how far you have to get before they start just getting rid of books that have anything that they don't like in them. Godwin's Law. We we did it. Godwin's Law. <laughs> music in general was fine, though. They didn't suppress a whole lot of music. I mean, I'm sure music was significantly different back then. 
classical plays made it through, so you wouldn't have all that much issue when it came to Shakespeare. They'd still show Shakespeare and, and that kind of a thing. So take that for what you will. There's this standard where you can't put anything misleading in newspapers. And again, Spidey Sense just goes off. And again, Godwin's Law just kicks in. But you can't put anything misleading in newspapers. So that's a spongy concept of what's misleading and what's not. Obviously, it tended to favor, you know, whatever political party was prevailing. Whatever their ideas happened to be, anything else would be considered misleading. So obviously, this is a thing, a lot of talk about this kind of a thing right now in social media about how you can't put misleading things which tend to be just whatever goes against the the political stance of the social media company but again not to overstate so they gained complete control of radio and used it to great effect there were these german films so they they tried to suppress filmmaking and they only made german films but then nobody saw them because they were terrible uh so so the film thing didn't go super well and the author himself talked about how he had access to international news. You know, he, he got newspapers from all over the world. But just seeing the German versions of all the stories all the time, he said it really had an effect on him. You know, even though he had access, well, a lot of people didn't, but he had access to all these other papers. Just seeing the German spin on everything, you know, the Hitlerian spin on everything. It, he would find himself ha being affected by this and feeling differently about things as a result. And then he talked about how he, how he would talk to people who were propagandized and how they were just different, you know? <laughs> there was just this glazed-over aspect to them. And this idea, oh my gosh, of German physics, German chemistry, and German mathematics. Uh, again, Spidey sense tingling, uh, this is the kind of thing you've heard... And obviously, the only I only have seen it in a couple of places where people have talked about, you know, either white mathematics and white chemistry and white physics. <laughs> but I've only seen a couple of videos related to this where people genuinely talked about this. But seriously, what are you talking about? There's no such thing as German physics or German chemistry or German mathematics. Uh, they're just all of those things that are true or false, and anybody can access those things. So it's really, really weird. And there's this whole, there's push where the, any idea that mathematics can be taught non-racially is dangerous. Mathematics, it's just numbers. It's just numbers. They have the same relationships to each other. In any culture, whoever's doing the math, whatever their skin color, whether they're Jewish or not, they have the same relationships to each other no matter what. But they're still talking about that it's, it's racially dangerous to say that mathematics are just <laughs> not related to race. That's insanity. And they were saying, again, this is another thing that uh, you see come up, modern physics as a tool of Jews to dominate. So the fact that physics are what they are is a, a tool of the Jews to be able to dominate Germans. Crazy talk, crazy talk. And again, the kind of same thing that you, that you hear about where in at least the United States, there's talk of the meritocracy being a tool for white people to dominate, even though white people don't dominate. <laughs> It's, it's kind of curious. So, But you see the same thing. Godwin's Law, Godwin's Law. Don't ever forget that term. <laughs> Every conversation ends up talking about the Nazis and Hitler. Uh, but still, still it's weird. And they talked about, again, that they don't want to lose differences in races. They want to maintain those distinction, be, distinctions between races. It's really, there's this purity thing, obviously, that people associate with Nazism. But this is something that's being sold then. And obviously it's something that to some degree, is being sold now. <laughs> it's like, you don't want to lose those distinctions that people are very different uh, when it comes to what race they are and should be treated differently. Oh my gosh, it's so weird. It's so weird where we are at this point. 
Anyway, so there, there's an appointment of a special court that was approved by Nazi officials. And Hitler, and sometimes Goering, I think Goering, like, screwed it up at the beginning, so I gotta take it away from him. But Hitler, at least, had the right to quash any criminal proceedings. So any criminal proceedings that were going on, he could just hop in and say, No, nope, I, don't, I don't like this, so just shut this down. Uh, that's insanity. Uh, the SS is established at this point, which, you know, the Gestapo. And it's not subject to judici judicial, I hate that word. You would, you would think that, given my profession, I would love the word judicial, but <laughs> I don't. But they did, you couldn't review whatever the SS was doing, the Gestapo was doing. You couldn't review it. Nobody reviewed it. Again, insanity. They started building the early camps and using them, but they were not at this point what they would later become. You know, they were just simple camps where they would take prisoners and some political prisoners, but they didn't do a bunch of medical testing on people or all the murder and stuff that they do later. There's this point where uh, they went searching, the Nazis went searching through voting rolls to find any votes against Hitler's policies when you try to get them passed. And obviously some people would suffer consequences as a result. So then you start getting these 99%, 98-99% approvals of whatever he's doing. Look at that, it's a mandate. Oh my gosh. Then a uni unified national police force instead of local forces. It's just galvanizing, you know, bringing that power together. And then you've got a, the February 19. 33 emergency decree and that's where the rest is history really on on that basis is that it's signed under duress by Hindenburg at this point and it was used for the rest of the Third Reich as the basis for all of Hitler's powers you know it was always an emergency after 1933 you've got the emer the murder of the Austrian Chancellor Dolphus uh, Hitler said that reunification with Austria needed to be done by any means and then you've got all the stuff that starts going on in Austria so the average German at this point, they just appreciated the revitalization of Germany, you know, and they have some kind of a source of meaning and that kind of thing. And even if they didn't like Hitler at this point, they still, they like that they can get a job. They like that Germany seems like it's going some direction instead of being just attacked roundly as, you know, the progenitors of World War One and losers of World War One. Uh, at this point, he starts rejecting the terms of the Versailles Treaty. And he makes a deal with the British. Again, another thing, if the British just push back, he makes a deal with the British to have a navy a third the size of the British navy. And the British accepted, but they didn't consult other allies and, or the League of Nations when it came to determining this deal with Hitler. And then he's preaching peace, you know. There were a bunch of quotes from a lot of his speeches at this point where he's preaching about peace and I have no interest in war and I just want to, I want everything to be peaceful and it's going to be great, don't worry about it. And he's doing this while he's marching in the, into the demilitarized Rhineland in contravention of the deals that were struck. And the French had a right to oppose it, but did not, of course, the French. I'm sorry, French. I don't mean to be harsh on you. <laughs> I know everybody gives it to you. At that point, it would have just been a police action. The French could have expelled the Germans easily at that point, but did not. And then the Eastern Allies are now looking at France and saying, you're, you're not going to enforce this against the Germans? What are we going to do? And then you've got Mussolini in Italy, you've got Franco in Spain, and Hitler decided to support the rebellion in Spain, the revolution. And he didn't want to help win the revolution in Spain. He wanted to keep going on, the Spanish Civil War, to distract the Allied powers and draw Mussolini closer to Germany. And he just kept reassuring, kept reassuring the Allied powers so that he's not inclined to go to war. Then we start really ramping up, and while he's saying that, while Hitler's saying this, it's not about war, Goering's giving speeches internally about how they're already at war. Like, we're already doing this. 
Mussolini came and met with Hitler in September 1937 and Hitler gave him all these big shows of power because he'd ramped up all the production. There was one issue related to uh, like the coal they were producing or something like that and they, instead of sending it to Britain they started diverting it all to German production and then you've got the, the really fateful decision on November 5th 1937 where he gives a speech, Hitler does, and they're planning this strategic confrontation you know on every front that they have all over the place. It was supposed to be defensive but they change it to an offensive deal where you figure out which sides you're going to have just a conflict and which sides are going to be a struggle you know which ones you can beat quickly and which ones you're really going to have to fight and they determined that the Czechs, Czechoslovakia, needed to be defeated early, you know, quickly. And this, the idea of Lebensraum, a living room, was the thing that came up that was supposed to be a justification for all these wars that he was going to embark on. And Britain and France were two countries that were just in the way of this point. And one of the big ideas that was interesting that I thought was this danger of obsolescence of the military. So he'd spent all this time building up the military, and he could just let it sit and wait. But at this point, because they had ramped up their production of the military and all of its new stuff, you know, it's got to be better than all the re rest of the countries who are still battered from the First World War and aren't gearing up for another war. They're trying to rebuild, you know, so Germany felt like, Hitler felt like, okay, we've got to be careful because right now we're ahead when it comes to military. So we don't want to wait for our military to be obsolete. We want to do this now. And so he said that ne it was necessary to take action before, at least before 1943 to 45, because around, you know, soon after that time our military is going to be obsolete and it's going to be wasted effort that we put in and then he decided that w they needed to take the Czechoslovakia and Austria to protect the flank right away and said that they are going to war this is 1937 that they are going to war that's it and it's just like he uh, described in Mein Kampf you know how many years before that he said they needed to try to be ready by 1938, but at least before 43 to 45. He took direct control over the military. He removed conservatives who got in the way, who didn't want war. And some of them, there were three in particular uh, at the end of this book, where the author talked about how a lot of them were framed, and there were a bunch of weird issues that they used to get rid of these people. Like one guy married this woman who turned out to be a prostitute, and she had all sorts of... <laughs> A weird history. And so he got cycled out. One guy was framed to have engaged in a whole bunch of tawdry sex acts, uh, which it was really a guy that... And tawdry for the time, obviously. Uh, it was really a guy who had a name who sound like him, sounded like him, and they knew that, but they just used it to, to use it against this guy. So anyway, that's the end of these two books. It's just ramping up to war now, and we get some background on him and all that stuff. So, uh, what's, uh, this is already really long, Jesus. Uh, what's my analysis? <laughs> this is what history writing used to be. It's just about reporting what happened in history. It doesn't have an agenda, it's not trying to sell you anything. It's just reporting what happened in history, and it gives all the balance back and forth of what's going on here. It's responsible, it's responsibly reported, and it was great to read. I was surprised how competent Hitler seemed. Like, that guy was ahead of everybody when it came to planning this this stuff out. I mean, if it wasn't for the insane consumption that he had related to race and the Jews, where he has to blame the, you know, gaslighting about the Jews doing everything wrong, he had incredible abilities to organize, he had... <laughs> You know, the ability to stick with it when it came to trying to accomplish something. And he was planning, you know, five to ten years in advance of what he was going to do and then getting it done. It was shocking. Like, it was shocking how competent this person was and then and how much he was... I mean, obviously, like I talked about, everything had to fall in place, but still, the, the amount of forethought and the amount of effort that went into every one of these steps is was surprising to me.
I mean, he manipulated the war-weary powers, and he just knew, you know, intuitively or whatever, that where he could push and would be perfectly fine, and how he could skirt the agreements that he had with people, and how he could play them against each other going forward, and that the French wouldn't do anything, and, and that the British just wanted to sit back and really didn't like the French, and that he'd just be able to march into the Rhineland, and nobody would do anything. He just, he was right about all those things. At the time, I'm sure most people would have been like, no, he's not going to get away with that. No, he's not going to get away with, you know, redistributing and and attacking Catholics and all this, all this stuff. He's not going to get away with it. And then he goes and does it. I mean, every local and international threat to his power, he just, he either galvanized it or crushed it along the way. Just, you know, it was just like the most efficient method of boiling the frog that, that you could have. And it was just, it was crazy how quickly rights were eroded. And you just wonder how they were able to just accept those things. Where it was just like, oh yeah, that right and that right. No, go ahead. That's fine. Attack the Catholics, whatever. And uh, just the, the Jews not being able to do this and then not that, then not that. And then it's just like, wow, how does that happen? So anyway, big picture, obviously we're going to have more of this book to go through as we as we continue. But... There was a lot of anti-Semitism, again, at the time, that it was fertile ground for that kind of anti-Semitism to really play its part. People should have been able to stand up against any of that initially when it started, when there just wasn't equal protection uh, related to different populations. But they didn't, and it just escalated and escalated and escalated. And it makes me think of, I was just watching Schindler's List, actually, again, for the first time in a long time. And there was that Louis C.K. joke about that little girl who, she's like yelling, Goodbye, Jim! Jews, goodbye, Jews. And the joke was about the girl in casting and how they had to go through a whole bunch of different little girls yelling that phrase before they got to the right girl who was saying that. But anyway, it's just, uh, you have to think that there was sufficient amount of cultural support for that kind of thing to not have any kind of resistance to it. And I'm sure there was a ton of propaganda that supported it, but still, you know, it's not like these are a bunch of blank slates that were just like, everybody's equal and I love everybody. Oh, wait, what's this propaganda saying? You know, uh, so it's curious. Curious. It was curious. And it was just surprising how many things needed to happen just right for him to be able to get the kind of power that he had. And for none of, nobody <laughs> intervening. The United States investing into Germany that was used, you know, thereafter to help build up the German military. France and Britain not doing anything, not standing up. If the Treaty of Versailles wasn't so draconian and trying to break Germany as much as possible then it wouldn't have created such a fertile ground for all of these things to take place. So anyway, uh, that's that's the first part. That's books one and two of The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. It's fascinating. It's absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Godwin's Law, Godwin's Law. It's a little terrifying, but um, yeah, it was great to read. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. I will see you on the... I'm not sure what's coming up, but I'll see you on the next one. All right, bye. Bye. <laughs>